Hello, and welcome to the official podcast of Bishop Malcolm Smith. These teachings are recorded live each week and provided not only here on the podcast, but at youtube.com. Simply go to youtube.com and look for Malcolm Smith webinars in the search engine there. We also want to invite you to go to www.malcolmsmith.org. There you will find other teachings by Malcolm, including books, videos, and MP3 downloads. And now, with this week's teaching, Bishop Malcolm Smith. The Lord be with you. And just to reiterate what I said last week, I'm very excited that um, we have now published our new book, This Son of Mine. Uh, We are waiting for a special printing and shipment to us And while we're waiting, which will probably be for the remainder of May, um, we are offering, just for pre-order, that I will sign every book that you order. And and so uh, order now, and then when it comes in, you'll receive a signed copy of that. Um, I'm sorry... We we cannot do that for international orders, because we are with that offer. We're offering it at three ninety nine shipping, and that does not work outside of the U S. And so um, I can't do that internationally. Um, and I mean the the price internationally is more than the book. And so um, sorry about that. Um, one thing I, I've noted uh, as people have talked, they're buying copies for their prayer group or Bible study group, and that's a jolly good idea because the book falls, every chapter is a sentence or even a word from the story of the prodigal son, which means that it, it, it could be discussed for a week and it would be grand to introduce your friends to this incredible message through the prodigal son. It's a result of 60 years of my meditating, studying, teaching on that story. And um, even as it went to press, I came up with another chapter. (laughs) That's why it took 60 years. It would never stop. And so I trust it will bless you whenever you get it. And I want to continue uh, on the subject of the grace of God and link it to where we began last week, which, of course, is from the story of the prodigal son. And um, this is part of what I would have put in, though uh, some of this is in the book, too. Okay, Luke chapter 15, verse 25 Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He summoned one of the servants, and actually that would be better translated, one of the little kids um, out there in the Middle East or Third World, the children are the continual couriers of what's happening around the village. They know everything. If you, They're better than email. And, and he summoned one of the children and began inquiring what these things could possibly be. 
And the child said to him, Your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, the oldest son, became angry, was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. That'll be enough, I think. And I think most of you know the story anyway. I want to quickly recap uh, what we described last week as the glory of God. It's, it's very important in understanding what's going on here. You find the, the expression glory of God throughout the scripture. What does it mean? I, as I said last week, the, the idea that is behind the word glory, it's describing shall I say, who a person truly is. It is their inmost isness. <laughs> uh, so it describes where the person thinks. It describes the heart intentions and desires. It describes the overarching goals of life and purposes of their being. So it would describe their dreams and their hopes, who that person is, and all of that, who they truly are, now revealed, expressed in words and actions. So their inmost person is now made concrete into history, time, space, with words and actions. And so... The word glory also then means your reputation. What, what it is that you've said and done and been uh, that people now know about, talk about reputation. And the word glory is always in terms of praise, the glory of a person, that, that life that has impacted their world, that their world praises them. And it, it, it means then the opinion so the opinion of a person concerning themselves and then the opinion of all others concerning them. Opinion. And it also comes to mean fulfillment. For when the person's inmost goals are done and achieved, then that achievement is their fulfillment. It is their reward. It is their glory. And that is where the word also means radiance uh, and, and brilliance, outshining, light. Because the, the glory of a person is how their inmost self has come out and has blessed and has impacted for good the world around them. It's the word glory in a nutshell. Um, now, when you come to Scripture, only God is glory. I, I want to underline that. The word is used uh, to describe that which passes between humans. But essentially, when we come to this word, only God is glorious. Only God. Only God is worthy of praise. And so we look at the glory of God. We come to the very heart, if we could even think it, the very 
center of the Holy Trinity and the scripture says he is love. And, and that is expressed in many, many words, uh, shall use as a sort of flashes of um, love in terms of his goodness, his sheer kindness. God is gentle, he is tender, he's long suffering, he is patient, he is compassion. He reaches out and forgives and forgives and never withholds it. He is the God who is love, love that is committed. So it's covenant love. And so he is faithful to his love. It is love that ever reaches out beyond himself. And that is why we are involved in the definition of God's glory. His glory is that he loves us, loves you. He is kind, he is gentle, he is utterly from his inmost person to his outmost act, he is pro-you. If God be for us, said Paul. And so he is, he is love, that's his glory. And I want to emphasize the is because it describes God not in a reactionary mode. God is not love because he's reacting to our goodness. Yeah. I don't even think that. God does not react. He is not uh, responding to some fantastic thing we did and he gets all excited and says, I love that fellow. No, God is love, therefore he acts spontaneously out from himself with no reference to the behavior or actions of those he loves. He loves us and he loves us not because of who we are but because that's the way he is, that's his glory. And that glory is not just a vague set of words, but God's glory became flesh. He so loved us that he willed to become one of the human family. The creator becomes one of his own creatures beyond us. It says they looked upon Jesus, John chapter 1. They looked at Jesus, and, and, and as they did so, they saw that he was 100% human, but at the same time, they saw the glory of God in him. John says, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. And 2 Corinthians 4 tells us that the glory of God was made manifest in the face of Jesus Christ. If you would see the glory of God, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus in the fact he is God who has become one of us and all that he accomplishes right through to taking our sin and screwed upness and pain and abuse and hurt and taking it to himself and entering into death and carrying us to a new life beyond our imagination. For why did he do that? Because that's the way he is. 
and that's the good pleasure of what he wants to do, says Ephesians 1. That's grace, you see. That, that's God just sheer givingness. It's not that he just gave you something. He is the giver and the gift and all to the nth degree. And having said all that, what is sin, says Romans 3.23, sin is that we have fallen short of the glory of God. And if we had time to talk about that, it means that the original blueprint that God had when he made us is that we should participate in that glory. We should delight and receive of that glory. But we fell short. We missed it. Missed it by a million miles. We, we invented our own blueprint. We said we're not what God says we are. Okay. So, mankind. You remember in the Garden of Eden, it says that they were naked and not ashamed. And then after they sinned, it says the first thing, they realized they're naked and they were ashamed. Whatever else that means... It is speaking somewhat, I believe, to this, that they who, who were clothed in, in glory that was bestowed upon them, now it's gone, and they stand naked with shame. They, they've lost their glory. Every other creature on the planet is born with fur and feathers and shell or whatever, but humankind, we, we fall short of our original clothing of the glory of God. So what does mankind do? He invents his own glory. <laughs> Isn't that ridiculous? He was clothed in the glory of God, so he's lost it. He fell short. He invented another program of existence, which, of course, does, is not. And so what does he do? He, he, he puts on fig leaves. Well, well, tragedy, tragedy. So, so the do-it-yourself glory, a, a Walmart special glory, Hmm. And of course, that, right there, mankind inventing his own shabby imitation of glory was the beginning of religion. Yeah, the beginning of sin it was not murder or adultery or drug and all the rest of it. No, no, that came much later. No, the beginning of sin was religion. That mankind would invent his own glory and present that shabby bunch of rags to God and say, look what a fantastic chap I am. It all began at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Life would be a matter of I do good, I do not do evil. And you do evil, and I do good, and... And that's where the elder brother fits in this story that we call of the prodigal son. But in actual fact, there were two prodigal sons. There's the one we're all familiar with, but this other fellow, people don't talk much about him, the elder brother. 
I, I wonder if it's because most of us relate more to the elder brother than we do to the fellow in the far country, whatever. Um, but we, he's introduced to us quite suddenly. We weren't anticipating this. Uh, uh, he suddenly shows up right at the end, and he's walking through the fields. That tells a story. He's been out there working, slaving his fingers to the bone. Now he's tired from a day's work. And so he's on his way home. And I, I, it doesn't exactly say so, but the context would strongly suggest it, that he was doing his favorite thing, which was contemplating or should I say maybe savoring the way that you go into the kitchen and you smell the food are cooking and you begin to salivate you savor well this fellow from what he says when he does start talking he has been savoring the opinion that he had of himself he contemplates his own shabby glory that he has invented woven the thing out of his own idea of what it should be and he, he, he beholds himself with smug satisfaction and he comes out in the negative he's not like others he's not lazy you see that's his big thing. He, he works, and I'll say he works like a slave, and I'm taking the words out of his own mouth. That, that's how he described himself. In, in our versions, most of them say that all these years I have served you. But the actual Greek word there is a lot stronger than serving. It is actually, all these years I've been your abject slave. Oh, I'm a worker, man. I'm not a lazy lout. I'm not a loser. I'm not one of those who, down in the marketplace, sitting on the ground, smoking and drinking and doing that. I Oh no, I am better than they are, especially better than my brother who's been gone these long years, especially better than him. He despised his brother as less than him. Have you ever seen um, a, a, a bird, a bird of a beautiful plumage, as it preens its feathers, you know, and holds them one by one and cleans them and seems uh, to admire them. Well, this, this chap, he, he, he's preening his feathers. And part of the preening process was saying, I'm not like my brother. I'm better than him. I am not. That, that, that's how he saw himself. I am not, I am not immoral, you see. I am not a wasteful scoundrel. I'm not a loser that runs off to the far country. I'm a slave of my father. Hard work, that's me. Slave of the father. That, that 
stands out in his talk more than anything else. Well, what a thing to say. I, I'm, I'm the abject slave of my father. See, slaves have no relationship. And, and their boss man is not even their employer. A, a slave has no relationship. That's why in many cultures the slave is looked upon as a thing, a possession. He's got no concept. I look at this man who, to uh, seeing him walk across the field, you would think he's an upright businessman. He's got his act together. He, but in inside, where, where his thoughts churn over... He's a slave. He has no relationship to his father. He doesn't even know the meaning of relationship. All these years I have slaved for you, he said. He knew nothing of covenant, which is the total self-giving to another. The covenant which is the glue of a family that that holds persons together, that you are loved and we will lay down our lives and die one for the other. No, this chap at best worked on the basis of contract. And a contract is the polar opposite of covenant. Of course, the contract... It was, no one else knew about it. That's the, the strange thing. He, he lives by a contract that no one knows about. He's invented it. It's part of this invention that happens in his deep self. He's in contract with his father, but the father doesn't know about it. The father's operating from covenant of giving himself. But this sullen fellow is operating out of, of some part of his head contract and you know a contract is a, a, well as I say there's no relationship it, it just means you will do this and this and this and if you do this and this and this then I will do this and this and this it, it's there's no giving in it there's no giving it's exchange for labor that's what it is. And, and, and if you do a little bit more than the contract demanded, well, you get praise from whoever hired you. And when you get your money, I suppose you could call it the reward of your labor. But, but none, there's no relationship there, none. No love. You don't talk about love. You, you contract the electrician, the plumber, the maintenance fellow. There's no love. You have a contract. And, and if he doesn't fulfill the contract, then there's punishment, you see. And he's talking contract. The lowest contract of a slave. The you know, best he can hope for is that he'll get praise and reward for doing the job better than is expected. What's going on here? Well, what's Jesus trying to portray to us in this story that he tells this elder son is the poster child for religious stress, religious anxiety. 
And of course, the people that Jesus gave this to primarily were the Pharisees, the most religious people of the New Testament. And they were the ones angry that Jesus was sitting down and eating with tax collectors, betrayers of the Jewish people. And so Jesus tells these stories of Luke 15 and this last story of the elder son is obviously he's describing the Pharisee. I say again this elder son is the poster child for religious anxiety. Just the words that he uses which spews out of his opinion of himself that this man is driven by a need to perform for his father. Well, maybe more that he's driven by a need to produce the want to do it. I mean, when you say I've been your slave, it doesn't exactly suggest you had a jolly good time doing it. There's a drudgery attached to those words. So he's got to draw from somewhere deep inside of him the very want to as well as the power to perform. And all that he does on the farm is a matter of performing for his father. Why? He needs the approval of his father because he views his father, his opinion of his father, or the way he would define the glory of the father, which was completely other than what the father really was. That his opinion, or the way he saw the glory of his father, was that he was a judge. A judge who would reward him for doing extra. Or a judge who would punish him for doing less than. Sad. Sad young man. And underneath all of that which is common denominator of religion, is it's a current of fear. Of course, they're, they're, why is that? Because if one is performing and doing stuff that you hope that your authority figure, God, is going to give a nod of approval to, well, you're underneath it all is the, the fear, total lack of assurance that you have done enough. All oh, that word, enough, enough. Have you done enough, you say? Have you done enough? When you go, if you're going to perform your way to God, which of course you can never can, uh, but if you would attempt it, you are you're haunted by the word enough. I, I have given some people a very bad time as I've tried to show them the absolute emptiness of what they believe. When I have said, "Did you read your Bible today?" and they said, "Oh yes," they read their Bible. Actually, I had one fellow say, I, I read my Bible religiously. <laughs> How well he said, uh, true. Um, and, and I just said, destroyed his day by doing it. I said, did you read enough? I mean, how do you know? You, you read for 10 minutes, 15 minutes. How do you know God needs you to read for an hour? And it goes for the same with 
prayer? Did you pray enough? Do you go to church enough? You ought to rededicate your rededications at your... Here we go. You see what I mean? It's always it's there. It's that fear that did I do enough? And so religion, or oh, hear me now, religion always needs, it's a constant gnawing like a rat in the basement of our soul. We need the constant reassurance that I'm doing enough to be accepted. Where do I find that? Where do I find it? By comparison. Oh, please, listen to this part over and over. By comparison. The Pharisees and this elder son, that they, they did it to perfection. They compared themselves to everyone around them and manipulated the situation to see themselves in the best of light. You could say they lived in a world of mirrors. They never saw any other person. A person, that's a, someone you relate to. They, they saw persons as mirrors in which they looked and compared themselves. They could only see themselves in comparison to others. They used others in order to give themselves assurance that I'm a jolly good fellow. That's why they, in some twisted way, they, they loved to have the tax collectors, which were looked upon as the scum of the earth, the betrayers of their people, Jews who sold themselves to the Roman masters. Oh, they love to have them around. See, if you're going to be truly religious, you've got to have exceptionally bad people around you because you need to see them and gloat that I am better than they are and they are going to be punished for the way they are. Don't you feel better? I, I, I have, I'm not being nice now, but I, I have seen people on their way to church on Sunday and they all troop out of their house in all their ties and ill-fitting best suits and dresses and, and um, they, they see their neighbor mowing the lawn. He's obviously not going to church. And all oh, there's that look on their face. I mean, it is both disgust at their neighbor, but also that smug gloating that I am, you see. And then, of course, religion has got to have around them those who are not as dedicated as they are. Those that will always be answering the appeal to make sure you're saved or something. You need those people because then I can look in the mirror of those people and say, well, I am totally dedicated. I'm sold out, you see. Religion needs position. Religious people are always grabbing for position where they can be established, affirmed, and acclaimed as better than. 
when when I, oh, terrible day for the religious, when, when I find someone who is better than me, they read their Bible more than me. That they, they really do, I have to, they're in church more than I am. And I find envy, I despise them, how, how, how dare they be better than me? and then go into default mode of finding some fault within them that I can talk about. Gossip. That's why religious people are the worst gossips in the world, because with words they cut, slice, and destroy anyone that seems, appears to be in their way. They become the judge of mankind, the destroyer. That's religion. This, it's a necessity to punish. Hold that word necessity. It, it, it means in the nature of the case. It, it's something you just must do because it's logic. Well, the necessity of religion is to punish. Punish anybody that is not like me. And of course, in so doing, avoid punishment. Because I believe I'm doing God's work for him. You see, this elder son, hear me carefully, his heaven demanded that his brother was in hell. Because only then would it complete the glory of this man. His glory, you see, finally I'm recognized. Finally I am praised. I am honored. I'm in glory, but of necessity, if that be the case, then my brother and all like him must be in hell. Part of this man's glory was that he would have all persons unlike him in, in, in a hell of their own making. And of course, he had to believe that his father would be glorified in the punishment and the casting out of his brother and of anyone else like him. Boy, that was a nasty five minutes, wasn't it? See, the glory of the Father, glory of the Father, suddenly became apparent to this young man. It, it would it invaded his senses, the glory of his father. And what did the glory of the father be like? It smelt like roast beef. And it sounded like music and dancing. He suddenly awakened to what is going on. That there's the smell of a roasting calf. There's a barbecue of major size going on. I can smell it out here in the fields. And the sound of music, the whole village must be dancing. What on earth is going on? And so he summons, and that's a nasty word. It, it, it means, come here, boy. It's not a nice chap. Uh, and... and the kid tells him, oh, you, you haven't heard, you. your brother's come home. <laughs> and your father has received him. And in 
Well, I think in just about any translation, they, they have translated it that um, he's killed the fattened calf because, he's, because, that is, all of this feasting and dancing is because he has received your brother back safe and sound. That is sort of, sort of the translation, but the, if we spoke Hebrew, the word there would be shalom. It, it means so much more to the persons of that day. It means your father has received him and, and, and received him with shalom. It, it, it means the peace of forgiveness. It means the peace of reconciliation. It means smothered in kisses. It means such joy that he's home we had to celebrate. Oh yeah, that little phrase was the grace of the Father, the glory of the Father. And can I can I say this? Grace is a wrecking ball. <laughs> as, as, as he's coming now into the, 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 the smell and the sound of grace, absolute giving love to the boy who's returned he comes into that now now he's right in it it is all around him and, and that grace is like a wrecking ball to everything that he called life his whole meaning to life the very foundations upon which he built life grace comes and smash i mean what 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 is this can, can you get in his head that this fellow who has lived in this mode of serving his father like a slave, who lives by comparison, I'm better, I'm better, I'm better. And certainly above all, I'm better in this family than my brother. And now he is met. Your father has received him with shalom. And because of that, we killed the fatted calf, and there's dancing, and there's music, and the whole place is going nuts. I, I have. It's taken me 60 years. I, I, I've tried to get inside that chap's head. I mean, for real. Everything that he called meaning to life, everything by which he ordered his life is gone in one great crashing moment. His father received that scumbag, that scoundrel. It's, a, it's like a, if you could imagine, a tornado of love swept through. Not, not just to, uh, it's not just to knock it down, it's because love would renew, love would rebuild, love would recreate out of that cold death that this elder son called life, grace would build life. And you see, the fact is you can't mix the grace of God with law or with religion, legalism. You can't. They don't mix. That's why grace of necessity is a wrecking ball. They, they don't mix. Over the years, I have <clears throat> talked with countless pastors and, and preachers, and, and they have said, in actual fact, that they, they like 
they like what I'm saying, so they're going to add it to their message. It, do, it doesn't work. I, I, I listen to some TV preachers, and they, they've got a bit of grace, but they just added it like a icing on top of an already made cake. And, and they, they, they talk about grace, but then it comes out. They don't get it. They don't get where it's coming from. They don't see the heart of God's love, that impassion never stops giving. And so they're, they're try- there's a mixture. And quite frankly, I would rather have all law than to try and mix it all together. You can't. It won't mix. The, the eldest son could not mix what the father did in terms of love and grace to this younger son. The elder son could not mix that with how he saw life. You can't do it. His position was that what he did, his behavior, and his behavior which was for his father's approval, for reward, and not therefore punishment, that, that, that was his life. You, you can't mix that with what's happening down there on the ranch. Okay. See, this is radical grace. This is it. This is the root of it. Does behavior matter? And you know there are multitudes who accuse me of saying behavior doesn't matter. Oh, don't be daft. Of course behavior matters. The grace of Titus 2. We we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Titus 2 says grace, the grace of God teaches us to say no to sin. Of course it matters. But not this kind of behavior. Oh, oh no. You see, to believe the glory of God the Father that is revealed in Jesus the Son. And when I say believe, I mean it in the new, ta- well, biblical sense, which is not to believe about it as an item of knowledge. It is to enter into it, believe it, because you relate to it, unite to it, and you can't live now without it. That's the meaning of belief. That changes your behavior. I mean, just for starters, you'll never again think of yourself as a slave. Isn't that interesting? See, when when I uh, entered what one might call full-time ministry... Uh, my, my, those above me, they said, well, go and do a work for God. Burn out for Jesus. Well, I tried to. I tried to do a for God and sure burned out. Because the Bible never calls us to do that. We're not slaves. We don't work for God. We are sons and daughters who share the very life of the Father. We're not on the basis of fear. We do not live for God so He will not punish us. We come to a glorious, total rest that we are beloved 
and accepted because of who God is, because of the glory of God the Father. And out of that, then we, we live, but, but not, not as a slave under contract, but as children that rest in covenant. It's, it's the end of stress, that religious stress and anxiety. It's replaced with joy, which religion knows nothing of. It's replaced with peace. That there's no pressure to perform because God in his glory has done the ultimate performing in Jesus and the Holy Spirit is God performing in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. And with that, the Holy Spirit assures us and gives witness to us that we are the beloved of the Father. And, oh, glory. (laughs) It's the end of comparison. Oh, do you understand? Religion cannot love one another. Cannot. They're too busy comparing. But now, despising, bitterness, unforgiveness, malice, envy, seeking to put another down, to put you up, condemnation, accusation. I mean, it's gone. Because now it's not a matter of performing, it's a matter of, I'm loved. And my brother is loved. I don't, I'm not in competition with him. We are loved because of who the Father is, because of what Jesus has revealed of the Father. We're loved and we're set free to love one another as we are loved. That covers most of sin. But whatever else may be left over, grace is the personal presence of the Holy Spirit's energy Enabling you to say no to sin. Okay. It says that he refused to go in to the feast. There's more there than meets the eye. Because the eldest son in that society, the eldest son of a family, he was at such a feast. Whenever there was a family gathering, whenever there was a big to-do, a Thanksgiving meal, whatever, The eldest son took the position, and I mean we're talking about generations. This is always the case. The eldest son takes the position of maitre d', head waiter if you like. He's the one that must go and welcome every guest. He is to seat the guests. He's to make sure they have their drinks and their food and And especially, above all other guests, he is to wait upon the guest of honor, which in this case was his brother, and to wait upon his father. I, I can't, there's nothing in our society that answers to this. Um, so you just have to take my word that not to do that was the highest insult that this man could ever give to his father and of course to his brother and to all the villagers who were now at the feast he could not that this this went beyond anything anybody in that culture could ever understand 
to the point where under normal circumstances if, if an elder son did this he the, the father would send out the servants to arrest him and hold him until after the festivities when he would receive public punishment I know that's hard for us to understand but believe me this didn't happen in Los Angeles it, it, it didn't happen in Johannesburg this was Middle East 2,000 years ago and that was it elder son was the face of the father he, he was the one who brought the love of the family to all the guests and especially the honored guests if he refused to do that there's no and there he stands fuming rage no servants came out no arrest his father came out right there that would have stunned every guest the father would humiliate himself by going out to this insolent son and when he comes out there's no anger he is love he is gentle he is kind do you realize this grace cannot be insulted did you realize that you can't insult grace because grace is not a reaction to who I am grace springs spontaneous from the father that's the way he is and so the father is faithful to his own true self that is love he doesn't therefore react to insults we can't slight him he comes out and he saw through the rage of his son saw right through it he saw this frightened little boy inside who saw his entire world built upon performance acceptance because of performance in comparison the whole world comes crashing down and he addresses him verse 31 he says and he said to him son that's quite frankly a bad translation the original language there says my dear child it's the strongest term of endearment that you can use my dear child and his child born of my love born to be loved born to be part of the family covenant of love born to share my life my son born to be part of and to share my goals to represent my love to the world to speak and act and think and be in my name the extension of my glory my dear dear child <laughs> I mean don't you see this yes I understand it religion is horrified at this whole thing of grace talks I mean it's bad enough that this father has so recently been kissing the filthy skin covered in pig muck of his other son now to this insulting arrogant self-righteous he says my dear dear son my child 
Do you realize, wherever you stand in all of this, do you realize at this moment you, as well as myself, you and I, we are infinitely more than we think ourselves to be? This man, the best this fellow could say of himself was, I'm my father's slave. The father didn't even argue with that. He didn't debate it. He cut right through and says, you are my dear son. You're my child. And then he goes on and says, you have always been with me. Always with. Obviously, the word with, it's... We know what that means. Strong word in the Bible, though. It means in the midst of. It means you're with me. That is, you share my life. You share my space. We live together. Eyeball to eyeball, cheek to cheek, face to face, shoulder to shoulder. We experience life together. We work together. We're pursuing the same goals together. We're friends with. And of course to the Pharisees, but to anyone actually in, in, in the, the crowd of listeners, it's a massive word in the Old Testament. A covenant word. You, the Lord be with you was the... That was the foundational statement of every Israelite as he announced their covenant relationship to God. The Lord be with you. And the coming Messiah was identified in Isaiah chapter 8 as Emmanuel, which means God with us. The Father was saying, you are, you're always with me. That is, you couldn't be closer. We share each other's breathing space. They're always with me. What do you tell you? What do you say? I'm a slave. What do you mean I, I don't notice what you do? All that I have is yours. All that is mine is yours. <laughs> look, look, fellow, you, you're, you can't earn what I've already given you. You say that I, I, I didn't give you a feast, I didn't kill the calf and give you a party, you didn't get even a goat. Well, of course not, you own the goats. All that is mine is yours. You, you, every blade of grass, I, I, I've given it to you. You can't earn it, you can't deserve it. I can't let it be a reward. All you can do is believe me. Trust me. I'm the giver. This is my gift and you've, it's been the way it is since forever. The only thing you can do is start using it. Receiving it. And be the fulfillment of my love and give thanks as you receive it. And then he says, it was necessary. Necessary. That word, the necessary. In the nature of the case, it's an absolute logical must that we have this feast and celebrate that your brother is home and restored. 
My joy is the glory of my person fulfilled. It's love's reward. Rejoice with me. I found my son, your brother. Or using Old Testament word again, justice is finally done. Justice, which in the Old Testament meant making everything right. Of course, as I said before, this fellow idea of justice was that his brother must be punished in order for him to be fully glorious. And in his mind, the only authority he knew, his father, surely must punish in order to keep his glory intact. You know, really and truly, that's daft. That doesn't make any sense. The father wanted his sons. He wanted his sons in love relationship. That's all he wanted. So the one who squandered his life in the far country, or this one that essentially has spat in his face publicly, if he wants his sons, can he be satisfied by punishing them? I say that's daft. You know, put them away in jail. Yeah, but in jail he still doesn't have his sons. And the glory of the Father is love that reaches out to embrace and overcome everything that would seek to separate. So if he punished, he still hasn't gotten his end, his goal. The cross of Jesus was not the satisfaction of God's wrath. It was not the satisfaction of a bloodthirsty monster that has got to thrash his son before he can find it in him to forgive you. The cross was the satisfaction, the fulfillment of the love of God that finally God himself has got inside of us and carried us to death and raised us into newness of life. Love is satisfied. And at the resurrection, the feast begins. Justice has been done. Satan has been stripped of authority. And you and I have been swept into the embrace of the Father. You know, one last thing, because I'm done now. But what happened? I mean, the, the story just finishes, hangs on the air. In a sense, of course, you and I are the end of the story. What do we do with the glory of God? What do we do with God's grace? Now, that's the end of the story. But let me just quickly say, oh, so quickly. The people listening to this were Pharisees. As well, of course, as the tax collectors themselves. What did they do with this? Well, you could say, what did they do with it? They, they stood in the shoes of the elder brother and they destroyed Jesus, crucified him. They were the force, religion was the force behind the crucifixion of Jesus. Because of this, if Jesus 
was right, then every Pharisee, his world collapsed and he had to come into the recreation, the renewing that grace always does when it destroys. It always builds us in the image of God through Jesus. But not all Pharisees did come to Jesus after the resurrection. And one of them, who described himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees. I mean, uh, the best Pharisee you've ever met. An expositor of religion who so hated the grace of God that he went about silencing every person that would name the name of Jesus to establish himself and establish the temple and the whole of religion. And on the Damascus Road, this same Jesus, only now radiant with glory, that is grace, glory fulfilled, now celebrated, And it comes forth like the energy of light. And and Saul of Tarsus, for that was the name, fell down inside of that glory. Unable to put any thoughts together, he said, Who are you? And Jesus, oh, he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's, I don't know. You see, logic would say when Jesus finally has the arch persecutor flat on his face, having to recognize that Jesus is. God come to us and God now carrying us to glory. I mean, why not just step on this insect of a man? Be done with him. He's upsetting the whole purpose. He's persecuting Christians. In fact, persecuting them so that Jesus said, why do you persecute me? Because every time you hurt a Christian, you're hurting Jesus. Why not get rid of him? Instead, there's such gener- he said, Saul, Saul. That was his Hebrew name that would be reserved for mum and dad. When mother called him for dinner, she would call down the street, child, child. It's gentle, Saul, Saul. Oh, come on, we want punishment here. No. The father comes out to meet him. Saul, Saul, why? What's the matter? Why why do you persecute? It's hard for you to kick against those. (laughs) You know, you know this is right. And Saul became the greatest expositor of the grace and the love of God 
so much so that the rest of the New Testament, almost all of it, is written by him. Peter couldn't have written the New Testament like that, nor could John or Andrew. It, it, it had to be someone that was so into religion and law to suddenly realize life is in the love of God, the gift of God that is in the face of Jesus Christ. And when he saw that, didn't matter, you could stone him, you could drown him, he would come back and say, now let me pick up where I left off. This, to religion, this is a scandal. To religion, this is the, <laughs> this causes rage because it appears to be a wrecking ball to my whole life. Everything I've built on, all my religious logic. But in fact, this is life. And I pray God everyone will see it so. Now the blessing of God, who is almighty love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, His blessing flood your life opening your eyes so wide to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and to enter into his rest and to begin a life of joy and thanksgiving Christ in you the hope of glory so I bless you. That is the way it is.